Um, I was asked over the next uh, couple of Sundays to, to take some of the one another's of uh, the New Testament for us to think about. And um, I've chosen for this week and for next week um, two of those in particular this, this week, uh, love one another, and next week, accept one another. And I think next week's is the one which kind of really grounds and earths the kind of things that I want to think about um, this morning. So this morning our theme is love one another. I want to work mainly from the text of 1 John. When you have a look through the New Testament at all the options of where you could develop this theme, it's just amazing. I mean, it, it, you, you just can't get away from it. It's everywhere. But possibly one of the texts more than any other that deals with this issue is the text of 1 John. So I'm going to make reference to it as I, as I go through this morning. I want to begin by saying it's important for us always to remember that the New Testament was never written as a theological textbook. It was developed over time as letters and records were written necessary to address specific situations and problems that the emerging church was facing. Every book of the New Testament has a context from which it was written and into which it was written for specific purposes. None are abstract. They're all living documents, every single book of the New Testament, um, in that sense. And I think that's what makes them very helpful. And 1 John is no different. We know from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 that there has been a division in the church. There has been a split in the church, or churches to which John is writing. John says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And we assume from the tone and content of the letter that the issue had to do with a particular heresy that developed in the first century, in which it was argued that Jesus wasn't really human. He only appeared to be human. The concept of the idea of the incarnation was completely denied. You didn't really need to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, or even that the Son of God would ever appear in the flesh. You bought more into the thinking of the contemporary world around you. And they also seem to argue that the concept of sin was a bit of a myth. So there's no need for a Jesus who died for our sins. And in response, in response to the heresy, and in response to the division that had occurred, the two main themes that you come across in 1 John are truth and love. Everywhere you go as you read through 1 John, those are the two things. Believing the truth because of the heresy. Loving one another because of the difficulties. When we think about the heresy, just listen to the introduction of uh, chapter 1 and the first three verses. That which was from the beginning which we have heard. This is all full about the senses where John is emphasising that Jesus was real. Uh, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
So right at the very beginning, John is addressing the theological issue, the heresy that has arisen in the church that that needs to be addressed and emphasizing the truthfulness of the reality of the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, who makes the Father known to us in flesh. And the letter is written to remind believers what someone has to believe, but also what someone has to do or what we have to be like to be considered true Christians. The person and the work of Jesus lies at the heart of true belief. But love and loving one another lies at the heart of true Christian living. And that's the thing we're going to develop this morning. The incarnation, John says, is critical. And incarnational discipleship is also critical. So I want to develop our theme of loving one another by thinking about looking to God, following Jesus and bearing witness. Looking to God, following Jesus, and bearing witness. Well, at the risk of leaving you singing this dreadful tune all day, I couldn't help think about the sound of music. You know that song, Let's Start at the Very Beginning? You start to hum it in your head? A very good place to start. When you sing, you begin with, don't pay me. You're all singing it yet? You'll be singing it this afternoon, and you'll be hating me. But anyway... At least you'll remember something from this morning. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, because if we launch into a discussion about the practicalities of loving one another, we very quickly get stuck in the whataboutaries, as a friend of mine calls them. We're supposed to love one another? Fine. What about when someone is ignorant or rude to me? What about when people are deliberately hurtful? What about when it's someone who's hostile to the gospel and gospel values? When it comes to understanding what it means to love one another, if we start with ourselves, we generally start with guilt or pride or denial or our hurts or something like that. If we start thinking about what does it mean to love one another and we think about other people, we start getting into judgments very quickly or issues of forgiveness or repentance. If we start with God we get some perspective because that's a very good place to start. And that's our beginning. And that's what John does. John tells us in verse 5 of chapter 1, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And goes on in chapter 3, verse 1 to say, see what love the Father has lavished on us. Chapter 4, verse 7, love comes from God And then in the next verse, those amazing words, God is love. And this is love, verse 10, chapter 4. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And just in case we missed it, he says it again in verse 16. God is love. When an artist wants to make a faithful representation of, for a portrait or focus, the focus and study is on the main subject. There will probably be all sorts of other things around, background things, but the main focus of study is on the main subject. When someone's in love, they don't really need other people to explain to them what love looks like. That knowledge comes through the relationship and the deepening appreciation of the other person. And when Christians want to present a faithful representation of what being a Christian is like, we start with our focus on God. Because the Christian life is essentially about relationship with and a response to 
the God who has come to us and loved us when love wasn't on our agenda. Too often the main focus for us as Christians on these issues is ourselves or those around us or the good or the bad experiences we've had. But loving one another is not about us. It's not even about each other. It is about essentially God and responding to God and to his love. And that's one of the things that John is trying to communicate to us here. So he summarises the issue in chapter 4, 19 to 21. Here's what it says. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So loving one another is not advocated in scripture because it's the best way to create a supportive, attractive community, though that may be true. It's because love is at the heart of God's nature and God is supposed to be at the heart of our affections. Loving one another is not advocated in scripture because it's the best way to create an alternative community that stands out in the world, though that is true. It's because love is at the heart of God's nature and is supposed to be at the heart of our affections. When John says we love because he first loved us, he clearly doesn't mean God loved us and we've been turned into machines that are incapable of anything else but love. It's obviously not the case. We're perfectly capable of hatred and abuse and selfishness and hurting one another. Now what John is emphasising is that our commitment to love, our concern to love, our willingness to love arises out of God's first loving us. Loving is an act of worship, as David has already said. Worship without loving is only an act. Loving is an act of worship. Worship without loving is only an act. The degree to which we are willing to love one another says more about our view of God than it does about the people around us. I know that starting with a focus on God can make life very difficult for us. Because I hate writing this stuff. And I hate saying it because it has implications for me. It creates a powerful sense challenge of the appreciation that I have of God or don't have of God. Powerful sense of the obligation to respond to such love that God has shown to me. But I know in my own case, if my life wasn't made difficult in that way, sometimes I would be busy making life difficult for other people. So we start looking to God and then we think about following Jesus. I don't know whether you'll agree or not. I think Evangelicalism has been plagued by an unhealthy emphasis on individual believism. From what I've said earlier about John wanting to ensure that people had a right belief about Jesus, you'll understand I'm not downgrading the importance of right belief. But right belief about God isn't the same thing as the kind of believism that elevates what goes on in the head above what emanates from the heart. 
Right belief about God isn't the same thing as the kind of believism that elevates what goes on in the head above what emanates from the heart. Right belief about Jesus is not demonstrated by asking him into your heart in that sense, but by making the commitment of the heart to become a disciple and follow in his way. I have a friend from the southern states of America whose research is based around the sinner's prayer, which is a huge thing, I believe, in many evangelical cultures there. And the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest communities of evangelicals in in the States, has been debating the merits of the sinner's prayer. There's two different theological factions are been slugging it out for the last couple of years about whether the sinner's prayer should ever be said. It's the kind of prayer that says, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I don't deserve eternal life. I believe you died and rose from the grave to make me a new person. Uh, Come into my life, take control of my life, forgive my sins and save me. And perhaps some of you came to terms with Jesus by praying a prayer like that. And I'm not knocking it for that. But the problem is that too much of evangelical individualism, individual believism, is about what I get out of the deal. Not about what I commit to. It's about what I can do up here that gives me the forgiveness of my sins and the gift of eternal life. Jesus didn't really say very much about that kind of thing. But he constantly called people to follow him. He constantly called people into discipleship. And he didn't always make it easy for them to follow. So that essentially, this Christian conversion that we talk about, this Christian commitment that we talk about, is essentially discipleship. Too often we present the idea, I think, that the primary thing is getting saved, and getting saved is about getting the words right, at least in our heads. And then we work on all the other stuff later. And that's just not the case. I'm sure quite a few of you grew up in children's meetings and Sunday schools and things where you had memory verses to learn. And um, one of the memory verses we had to learn, and I often heard it, quoted from the pulpit in the church I grew up in as well is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 which I suspect many of you could probably say with me for it is by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not by works lest any man should boast I think we used to get prizes for saying that and do spaghetti quizzes and things do you ever do the spaghetti quiz? you haven't lived For some reason or other, we didn't learn verse 10. And I think that was a major mistake. So can you say verse 10 with me? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We should never have separated that text. So let's hear the whole thing. For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
Salvation may not be by works, but it is for works in the name of Jesus Christ, without which there is no evidence of salvation. That's how radical that passage actually is. And that's what the book of James is all about. And sometimes people try to put James over against Paul, but it's only because we only read part of Paul. And loving one another is not one of those things that we need to get round to working on at some stage. It's a core work for which we have been saved. Loving one another is not one of those things we need to get round to doing sometime. It's an essential indicator of authentic Christian faith. If it isn't there, we have to question whether any authentic belief is there at all. And there's no ambiguity as far as John is concerned. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. 3 verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Undoubtedly, 1 John is based around the experiences that are recorded for us in John chapter 13. You may remember that passage, that's where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. One of the really dramatic and moving passages in John's Gospel. Something he didn't need to do, something that he did in the middle of the meal, so it wasn't the traditional thing of simply washing their feet at the start of a meal. Somebody else must have done that. This is a very, very deliberate action that Jesus does, which was totally unexpected. And having washed their feet, he says to them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And later on, John records for us a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. So when we come to 1 John 4, it's no surprise to read whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother and sister is a liar. I find John's language in 1 John. I mean, the whole theme is about love, but the language is harsh sometimes. Because I want to stop right there and say, John, would you like to rephrase that? You know, maybe they just haven't quite got it. And I want John to rephrase it because... I struggle with it. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sisters, could you just... And John's response is, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I think many of us here have probably grown up in the testimony culture. Sunday evening uh, in the church I grew up in, there was always a soloist or a testimony. 
Um, I was very holy as a young person. Don't know what happened, but I was very holy as a young person. I always used to go to the prayer meetings. And in the 6.30 prayer meeting, we would always have been praying for the combined effort, which I foolishly thought was something to do with the Bible and the Spirit of God. Until I realized it was actually to do with the preacher and the soloist. That was the combined effort. And when we didn't have a combined effort, we had a testimony. And I have given a testimony many times. I'm not sure how true it is, actually. But um, I did it anyway. And we were with recently uh, some friends and we were recounting the story that um, in Newry many years ago um, they didn't have a soloist particular Sunday evening. The person who was to give the testimony didn't come. And one of the children in the congregation, daughter of the elder, one of the elders of the church, she said, I'll give my testimony. And... Um, they were sitting around the tea table. This is absolutely true because she, she reminded us of this recently. And her father said, well, that would be very interesting. I think she was probably about eight or nine. What, what will you tell us? Well, I'll say how I used to drink and smoke. <laughs> and the Lord saved me and I'm a different person now. I think many of us have grown up in the testimony culture where we can string words together which are essentially to try and convince other people that they need to come and know Jesus. But the testimony that counts is not the testimony that says I believe that Jesus is my saviour but the life that demonstrates that I'm a follower of Jesus. And loving my brother and sister is a key element in that testimony. So getting grips to grips with loving one another requires looking to God and following Jesus. But it's also the case that loving one another is about bearing witness. Jesus says exactly that in John 13, verses 34-35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Don't take my word for it. I didn't say that. And it's precisely that for that reason that Jesus prays as he does in John 17. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me for all the campaigns that we develop and all the literature that we publish and all the words that we speak and songs that we sing the most powerful witness to the world of the reality of the risen Christ is the love that is demonstrated in the life of his community I suppose the converse is even more obvious. When it's clear that Christians don't love one another, it does great harm to the gospel. And you folks understand the public perceptions and harm to the gospel that comes with a breakdown in Christian relationships. And it's painful. So we know that loving one another is a powerful witness. 
But the thing that intrigues me in First John is that love for one another and loving your fellow Christian is actually an important witness to your own spirit that you belong to Jesus Christ. It's not just bearing witness to the world out there, but bearing witness in your own spirit. I've often preached on the question of assurance and pointed people to the cross and the empty tomb pointing out that all that was necessary for their salvation has been done, finished and achieved in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. But listen to what John has to say. In chapter 1 verse 3 he says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. There can be a bit of self-testing goes on, a bit of self-reassurance even. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. It's a means of assurance. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The commitment to love one another not only bears witness to the world out there about the reality of the love of Christ for the world and in our lives, but bears witness to our own spirit that we belong to Christ. That's what John is saying here. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love each other. This is how, he says in verse 19, we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Loving one another is not just a matter of public witness. Loving one another is an important means of witness to oneself that we do indeed belong to God. And I think this section in 1 John 3 is very important. Many of us, all of us, go through times of doubt and uncertainty. There are doubt-fueled periods of darkness in our lives. I suspect that many of us sometimes feel condemned by our own weaknesses and failures. But John tells us that our hearts can be put at rest in his presence by two things. Right belief and right loving. Those two things can calm a troubled heart. Putting it positively, we can have confidence before God and ask boldly of him for our needs when we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And what pleases him is that we love one another. One of the things you also need to bear in mind is that most of the language of the letters of the New Testament is plural. It's one of the difficulties with English. It's one of the great benefits of Ulsterisms. If the New Testament had been translated into decent English, it more often would talk about yous. 
But unfortunately, English is a bit deficient. It needs a bit from the Celtic fringe to lighten it up a little bit. And in very, very many of the passages of Scripture that we take from our Bibles and read, you should really, when you see the word, make it use or usens. Because the vast bulk of the text is written in the plural, as is First John. Now, the, we read it as an individual thing, as something to us, and rightly so, because, because it is. But this is to a community. This is to a community that have experienced real difficulty. Where there's been theological issues involved that have completely divided them. So this is use John is talking about. And when you bear that in mind, then I think I can say this to you. Without making judgment on anyone else, the veracity of your life as a fellowship the validity of your community, the integrity of you as a community of Christians will be evidenced by your love for one another. That's what matters. That's what makes you real before Christ and real before the world. If you truly strive to learn to love one another, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says about yous. There's no reason for your hearts to condemn you. You, Lord, can be at peace in his presence. That's what the text is saying. So as you look to the future, loving one another is a critical means of witness to the veracity of your faith and witness as a fellowship, both individually and together. Love one another, the scripture says. Love one another by starting at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. By looking to God. By following Jesus. And you will be bearing witness to the world and to yourselves of the reality of your faith. And as to what one, loving one another might look in practice, well that shouldn't be too hard to work out. And I suspect that accepting one another is a key part of it. And that's for next week. But this morning, because I've still got a few minutes, we're going to conclude with 1 John. And I'm just going to read part of chapter 4 to you. The first part of chapter 4 addresses, addresses the issue of right belief. Where he says, speaking of the particular heresy they dealt with, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of of the Antichrist. And then he takes us to this amazing passage. And in the tradition of one that many of you will have known in the past, one David Dunlop, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read this passage of scripture to you. First John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The man who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother.